Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome, welcome, everyone, to We Earth Radio, conversations that make a difference. This is your host, Michael Stone, and I am so excited to have my friend Mark Nepo on today. He is the author of the number one New York Times bestselling book, The Book of Awakening. He's a beloved poet, teacher, and storyteller who has published 22 books and numerous videos and audios. He's also doing a number of series online these days, which we'll talk about today. His recent work includes The Book of the Soul, 52 Paths to Living What Matters, Drinking from the River of Light, The Life of Expression, More Together Than Alone, Discovering the Power of Spirit and Community in Our Lives and in the World, Things That Join the Sea and Sky, Field Notes on Living, and a book of poetry, The Way Under the Way, The Place of True Meaning. A two-time cancer survivor, Mark devotes his writing and teaching to the journey of inner transformation and the life of relationship. Mark, welcome to our new show. Oh, thank you, Michael. It's great to be with you again and to be a part of this new show. Yeah, it's interesting times. It feels like we're going through a rite of passage of some kind here, but there's so many challenges that people are facing You know, I see some people really stepping out and opening and learning and growing and other people just kind of hiding out and uh, a lot of fear and anxiety. So let's talk about what it takes to meet these times of rapid change and deep evolutionary kinds of change that are coming down the pike. Yeah. So so first, let's, let's enter that by backing up a second. And, and I really feel that whether it's individually or collectively, when we go through difficulty and times of crisis and times of trauma, those circumstances accentuate and bring into relief all the kinds of decision and choice points and possibilities of living that we experience in, quote, normal time, whatever that is. (laughs) You know, often in our Western world, especially, we have this aversion to difficulty and suffering. We want to run and be happy and joyous. And it's like as if something happens to someone, well, gee, that has nothing to do with me. When in fact, those circumstances, like when I had cancer or when someone is grieving or when someone is going through that their world is turned upside down through pain and loss. Um, Those make more visible what are the spectrum of, quote, normal choices. So everyone, when they're suffering, has a wisdom the rest of us need. And so at any one given day, all things are true. All things are not fair. All things are not just, but all things are true. So that, you know, this was so profoundly made aware to me during my, the depths of my cancer struggle years ago when 
when I suddenly realized, not through any wisdom on my part, but because I was exhausted and afraid and in pain, that it, while this was all true for me, someone nearby, a baby was being born and, you know, a couple was making love for the first time and the sun was coming up and that all of those things are happening at once. So, so now to come fast forward to where we are, all things are still true and even more in dramatic relief that while this is at once, I was just reflecting this morning that, you know, the time here in, in my home, uh, in my space with my wife, Susan, who's a potter and our yellow lab, Zuzu, are becoming more and more sacred and opening and poignant while at the same time, there is immense suffering and pain and loss and chaos everywhere. All things are true. And while I'm at this moment able to lean into what's opening, there are all kinds of people in this moment who don't have enough food on the table, who've lost their jobs, who all things are true. And but for a, I mean, I used to say, when I was still on the other side of my, of almost dying that, you know, it's, but for a hiccup of God that I'm here uh, and someone else isn't. And as we talk about this, it's, but for a hiccup of God that two other people aren't here discussing this while we're homeless and out of work and you have, you know, six kids and not knowing what to do. And when we love them to death, to life, love them to life, not to death. Yeah. So that's the backdrop humbly that, that I want to explore. How do we lean into this time and how do we meet this time with, with utter compassion? Can we unpack a little bit? Because there's so much in what you say. All things are true. And how I hear that, and it might not be accurate because I haven't heard I haven't heard it said like that, but what I hear you saying and how it's experiencing over here is all things are true. In other words, all things as they are and as they aren't, as opposed to what happens much of the time is we're li living in the past, not even the past, it's the remembered past, or we're imagining a different future, but we're not where we are in the center of what's happening. Is that, am I accurate? In yeah, yeah. Let me, let me clarify a little more, lean into that a little more. So again, going back to, I think my first experiential understanding of all things were true was, was being blessed to survive uh, my cancer. And I was so blessed to have people from all traditions. And I don't just mean formal traditions. I mean, atheists and scientists and agnostics and, you know, uh, all kinds of people, formal and informal, who kindly offered me some help or some blessing. And so waking up on the other side, I was not, and all these years, 33 years later, I'm still not wise enough to know what worked and what didn't. And I feel like I was called in that moment to believe in everything. And I have been a student of all paths ever since, which has informed all my books, all my work, all my teaching. So all things are true is that the diversity of life, the wholeness of life is what is restorative and healing. We can't separate it out. It's the paradox. You know, the paradox is that, that 
you take water and we all know it's made of hydrogen and oxygen. We learned that in what, seventh grade? Well, that they're, that they have to be together to be water, to be quenching, to be healing. I can't say to you, I'd only like the, a glass of hydrogen, please. Because even if you could do that, it would no longer be water, it would no longer be whole, and it would no longer be life-giving. And the, one, of the, one of the innate powerful paradoxes of life is that joy and suffering, peace and fear, all of those things make up the water of life. People from the beginning of time have wanted to say, well, you keep the, the difficult things, thank you very much. I just want the nice ones. Of course we do. But that, even having just the nice things, is no longer restorative. And so it's the whole of life, and it's the diversity of life and people that is restorative. And we, you know, life has somehow been made just difficult enough that we need each other to ensure the journey of love. So, so one last thing about that all things are true is that uh, we'll just we'll just make a, a situation. So there's a, a family, a father, a mother, and a daughter, grown daughter, teenage daughter, you know. And the father is a, a a gambler. He's an addictive gambler. So he he gets the his paycheck and he he squanders it, and then he comes home and he lies that he lost it. You know, we have three levels of truth at least. We have the literal, the factual, circumstantial level of truth. He gambled and he lost the money. You know? And he's and um and then we have the interpretive truth, which is his wife and daughter know this, and they struggle. Why is he doing it? what how can we stop this? What does this mean? Why is this is the interpretive level of truth. And then we have the all-encompassing truth, that the fact that th this whole story is truth, the fact that he's a liar and a gambler and is hurting himself and his loved ones, those falsities are true in the geography of life happening. So we have all these ripples of levels of truth, and all of them well, and again, again, this all supports what you offered, Michael, that it is in the constant practice of seeing things as they are that we can see what's possible. You know, and, and so we have whole philosophies, right, that, that, you know, the wheel of life keeps turning, just keeps turning. And if we freeze that wheel of life at any one point, we, you know, if you freeze it on the top, you've got romantics and transcendence and let's, you know, you know, the, the words were, the world is too much with us. I want, you know, or, you know, let's, let's not. And then you freeze it on the bottom and you've got nihilism and pessimism and existentialism, but it's all of them. Yeah. So it, and, and seeing things as they are is recognizing where we are in any one given moment and what part of the wheel of life are we on? Mm -hmm. I love that. It brings up for me how missing 
an education in systems thinking is that we don't see the world as interconnected system of wholes all operating together within a whole system. And we're so much affected by the mechanistic perspective that we're objects in a world of objects that you're over there, out there, or in the little square on my computer, <laughs> and I'm over here. And even, even in this way, the reality is that actually you're over here in me, in my nervous system. <laughs> I'm not separate from you. In fact, everything I can know about you has to do with how, what I know about the world. And which is always in flux, as you're saying, always changing. So how do we move from that sense of separation, which is really, I think, at the heart of most suffering, to a more interconnected whole systems view of my relationship to the world of which I'm interacting with all the time? Well, I think, you know, that this is a, it's a great question and it's our turn and all the traditions in their own way speak to this. And, th and, and, and this is why we need an inner practice to, to whatever it is. It doesn't mean we have to have things figured out, but that we literally walk in the world with ourselves and each other. And to me, it comes back to very fundamentally basic kind of spiritually primitive actions. And what do I mean? I mean, this is why all the traditions speak about breathing and meditation, you know, breathing to, to return to where we are, holding nothing back. Life, all the difficult things in life, all the worry, the anxiety, pain, fear, they, they push us away. That's how they say hello. They go, whoa, you know. And our job is to lean back in. Mm. Yeah. Is after, we, after we're pushed away, to lean back in, to hold nothing back. And this perhaps might be the most quiet courage of all. Is once life and its elements push us away, is to lean back in and to listen and to hold. Listening and holding, I feel, are two, two elemental medicines that have never... You know, we have a lot more tools and gadgets and gadgets and everything, which are wonderful. But when we go back to, you know, there has never been a time in my life. There's very few things I think you can say never. Never been a time in my life when I have held or been held that it hasn't been healing. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's been a time in my life when I have listened or been listened to. I may not hear what I, you know what I'd like to hear, but there hasn't been a time when I've listened or been listened to that it hasn't been healing. So how do we return to that when we're, when we're in the midst of feeling that we're separated, that we're suffering, that we're confused, that we're afraid? How do we, so that means we need to ask to be held sometimes, and we need to ask to be listened to. You know, I think one of the, and, and I'm sure a lot of people identify with this, if not experienced it, that when I was, you know, so ill and uh, struggling, it was a great humble lesson to learn how to simply ask for help. Mm. Say, yeah. help. 
help, you know, and thank you. Help and thank you. And, uh, and so I think we need to remember this. You know, I, I was, last summer before COVID, I was interviewed by a wonderful young editor in uh, London, young woman. And uh, there, you know, she was saying that in her generation, in London, in Europe, there was an epidemic of loneliness going on. And, you know, how did I, could I speak to that? And you know what, what came to me is this humbleness of, of asking for help. And that, you know, I remembered again, the medical kind of metaphor is, uh, you don't interview ambulance drivers. You take the first one that comes along. <laughs> yeah. You know, so if you're lonely, okay, you know, call somebody up uh, now, Zoom. We can't really go out that much right now, but still uh, don't, you know, I think some, this leads to where our, our society's false education of having preferences stacks and stacks of preferences, which we think are sophisticated, they only isolate us. Yeah. No, no, you know, I have requirements to have a friend. No, if you're lonely, that's a re that's requirement enough. And maybe it won't be, you know, maybe you won't know till you stumble awkwardly and say, hello, hello out there. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> no deals. Yeah. I want to back up to get to this another way because you were talking about healing just a minute ago. And from what I know, the root word of healing means to be whole, wholeness. Mm. And yet one of the things that keeps us from being connected to others, but also being connected to ourselves, our own emotions, our own bodies is the fragmentation, the dissociated parts from trauma or from events that happen early on. And so to be whole in an individual sense means to, as you were using the word, leaning into the edges of those areas where we've got trauma or got dissociated parts. And the, to the same thing in relationship to when we're separate and lonely and can't reach out to lean into. And that takes courage. And it reminds me that you have a, I think in January, a new program called Finding Inner Courage, our walk in the world. So to lean in is gonna take courage. So let's talk yeah. about courage a little bit. Yeah, so thank you. So that. yeah, I've been you know offering it and I just finished uh, one. And so yeah, the next, three session webinar, which will be on three successive Sundays in the end of January is on this theme of inner courage. And, and uh, just to logistically, so folks can find out more about it and, um, and register at live.marknepo.com. And it's open now uh, for registration. Um, and I have a, a book called finding inner courage and, and, you know, my books for me, they're how I learn, and the, the the books are the trail of the inquiry, and and so you know when I wrote Finding Inner Courage, I I needed didn't matter whether people thought I was courageous or not. We all have our limits, and I needed to learn how to be more courageous, and that's how I learn. And so the book was a trail of my learning, 
of expanding that edge for me. And, and so it's interesting that what gave me a way into the book was discovering that the, in the West, the word courage goes back to the Latin core, C-O-R, which means heart. But the first idiom, the first expression of it, courage means standing by one's core. That gave me the whole way into the inquiry. So inner, you know, the outer courage, when we think of people who are helping us right now, first line responders and hospital workers and all kinds of amazing people. And, and the, you know, the, the kind of image of, you know, a fireman running in to save a child from a fire or all kinds of the outer forms of courage, which are remarkable. The, these, these are, are flowers that grow out of the soil of inner courage. And the soil of inner courage goes back to discovering and being faithful to our authority of being, which only has authority because it aligns when we stand by our core, we are standing by the core of all being. So how do we practice that? And, you know, how do we, you know, to encourage means to, instill courage to instill standing by your core and following our heart and making a strong healthy connection lifelong friendship with our core you know the other thing that when i first started exploring that book was i had a friend who had lived in mexico for a while and was very fluent in spanish and i was curious and i said well you know how would you say courage in, you know, in Spanish? And we started talking and then I started saying, well, you know, how would you ask, like, what does courage mean? And, and she told me that one expression translates not as what does courage mean, but what does courage have to say? Ah, so that it's not something that is initiated out of nothing. It's something that we when we can can stand by our core we participate in the larger element spiritual element that is courage mm-hmm. and that that's a whole different thing mm-hmm. but i, I want to go back and 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 uh and talk about it this way too that all traditions speak about what it means to be a spiritual warrior not a military warrior, but a spiritual warrior is one who is committed to a life of transformation and compassion. One of the things I was, this summer I was teaching online a a five-week session with an amazing group of students in China. And of course it was with a translator, which was a remarkable experience. And through this, I learned from Joy, who was the translator, an amazing woman. There is this, and, and this happens, there are words and other languages that we don't have equivalents in English, you know, and, and one amazing word is this word and, and Chinese is they're ideograms. They're not letters and alphabets. They're pictorial representations. And this, this word in, in Chinese, tui bian, tui bian, which means taking off all coverings to be one's true self as time unfolds. 
What a word. That's beautiful. Yeah. That it's it's I said, wow, that's my whole life's journey and work and all of our taking off all coverings to be one's true self as time unfolds. Mm -hmm. So I offer this because all the things we've been talking about, how how do we in this time of COVID, being sheltered, being physically distanced, having fear, feeling disconnected, feeling lonely, we have to continue to practice taking off all coverings to be our true self so we can stand by our core and reconnect to what matters in life. And so to follow up with that, I wanna offer one other thing here and, and then connect them. And so the other thing is that I learned when I was doing my most recent book, The Book of Soul, that the word war goes back to an Indo-European word, wers, W-E-R-S, which means to confuse and mix up. Mm. All war and violence stems from confusion. So to be a spiritual warrior, we need to practice integrity, justice, and healing. And I would offer these. So the practice of integrity is Tway Vien. Practice of integrity is to be committed to taking all coverings off to be one's true self as time unfolds. The practice of healing is to remove confusion and what's in the way within us. To practice justice, just to round it out, is to remove what's in the way and confusion between us. Healing is removing confusion within us. Justice is removing confusion between us. You know, that's a lot, I know. But what I want to offer our listeners is, and what I want to work with the people that I work with about is, what does, that, what does that look like very personally for each of us? I invite everyone listening to personalize. How are you practicing integrity? How are you taking off all coverings to be who you are? How are you practicing healing? How are you removing confusion within yourself? And how are you practicing justice? How, how are you removing confusion between you and others? That's a lot. <laughs> I have 50 questions, Mark. You always do this to me. You know, when I first went to China, I went right after the bamboo curtain was raised and I got to go in with an American who'd been there 32 years, 17 of them in prison. I got a real taste of China right after they opened up. We were at a temple and there were these two kind of lion gargoyle things that are at the temple. And I said to Sydney, I said, what are those two lions? He says, ah, those are the guardians of the truth. I said, guardians of the truth. What are the guardians of the truth? He said, one is confusion and the other is paradox. Uh. And I love that. And I always remember that. And so, you know, just to, to bring it back, first of all, there's the, authenticity and the, you called it the authority, I think, of the of inner core, being. I would say like agency, something like yeah. that, to, to have my agency, agency of the heart, maybe something like that. And, you know, I work with so many people with trauma, 
particularly part of my work or soul loss, whatever you want to call it. And one of the things that I have realized in the work and and from other people is that if we have a choice between attachment, and I'm talking about, you know, attachment theory, how we develop, and we have a choice of authenticity, attachment will always win. You know, it will always trump being genuine, being authentic, being real, because our survival gets threatened. So that's a part to lean into and notice, uh, I'm not being authentic. What's the story behind that? Oh, I was left and I feel like I'll be abandoned or whatever those things, you know, how, how we develop as human beings. So there's that sense of authenticity it came up in confusion and paradox. So yeah. we, w- we want to be real and authentic and seen. And then we don't want to be seen because we have shame and guilt and all these parts of us that we've stuffed away. And then there's this thing of healing or wholeness, both personal and uh, there really isn't any separation, but personal and relational healing uh, that's in that. And then you talked earlier about the whole system, the gestalt, the the bigger picture of it. But when we look at the bigger picture, life wants to heal. Life is designed to heal. If I get a cut, I can just watch it heal. If I pick at it and try to fix it, then it's not going to heal. By the same token, so many people that I talk to start from a place of I'm broken. Something's wrong that needs to be fixed. Can you fix me? Should I take a pill? What can I do? All addictions fall into that whole area. Mm -hmm. So to get to this place that you're talking about of authenticity and integrity and healing and then relational justice, there's a, that's a long road in there between the developmental stages and what the evolutionary imperative is calling for in terms of us being connected now. Well, I hope that makes sense. Yes, yes, yeah. So thank you. So, so as we circle this, you know, I, I let me speak to it this way. I see all those things not as some developmental ladder, but as thresholds that are around any person that we can any anyone will do. Mm-hmm. anyone will do. And, and I actually would hold, I mean, I, I hear the distinctions about, you know, when you were saying that attachment theory versus being authentic, but I have experienced authenticity as natural attachments to forces that beyond what are human. My authority of being, you know, when I, and this is why often when I teach, I ask people not to understand everything larger than you befriend it because there is an attachment there, a healthy attachment, just like you were saying, we all, we do have this attachment between, you know, we are more together than alone. So there is, there is something, this is a a paradox, of course, between solitude and community there, there, we have a need to be with others because we are more together than alone. And we also have a need to be authentic, to 
to have a directly renewable experience of what it is to be alive that no one can give us and no one can take away. And I understand these or experience these as both beautiful and equal. And it's when we, you know, so let's talk about solitude and community for a minute because we're all experiencing both and a lack of both, a lack of community and too much solitude, depending on where you are in all this with being, this having to be sheltered. To me, this speaks to the relationship between presence and meaning. Presence is the renewable, this is leaning in. This is, you know, I know we're, it's amazing and it's humbling. We have to use all these words to talk about this, but the things we're talking about are very direct. We go back to listening and holding and leaning in. And presence is how I remember in a felt way how rare it is to be here at all. And when I do that, of course, it issues gratitude comes up in me. But what it also does, that feeling of presence cleans the eyes of my heart, the eyes of my mind, the eyes of my eyes, my ears. And then I see, feel, hear, and think differently. So presence is a cleansing, is always a cleansing. And we have to do that repeatedly. Now, the liability or shadow of presence in that way is if life is so much more than just me. If I stay with only my direct experience, oh, brother, then all of a sudden over coffee, my steadfastness turns to stubbornness. How did it happen? Between the sip and the swallow? What happened? No, but presence... When you're present and I'm present, that now gives us access. I get access by being present, not only to how rare it is to be here, but now I have access to your presence. The channel is open and I now can experience things that are not just me. And that gives rise to meaning, gives rise to meaning. This gives rise to Martin Buber's I Thou, you know, that we are more together than alone and that when we are two authentic centers, then what happens, the dialogue between us is the, as Buber calls it, the unrehearsed dialogue of God. So this, so I feel that presence is an attachment to, to being alive, to the dynamics of being. I mean, this is, everyone will be given the chance through, great love or great suffering to be dropped into the depth of life. And when that happens, we start a deeper conversation. How do I relate to everything that is larger than me and not me? That is, that's a practice. That's an, a never ending practice. And so one last metaphor here that's been so helpful to me comes from whales and dolphins. You know, these mammoth creatures, which we take for granted, they're air-breathing creatures. So they can hold their breath a long time, but they still have to come up. And when they come up, we know whales and dolphins by the way they breach the surface, this magnificent breathtaking, breathtaking thing. No matter how renewing it is, baptizing for them to immerse themselves in the deep, which they have to do, they can't stay down there or they'll die. And no matter how magnificent the breach is, 
they can't, they have to come in back into the world, the surface world. They can't stay there or they'll die because they have to stay wet. This is a fantastic teaching metaphor for being a spirit in a body and time on earth. Because the question isn't whether a whale will go back into the deep or breach. The question is, what's their rhythm? And so the question is, for you and me and everyone is not whether I'm going to go back into solitude and renew my direct experience of being alive or whether I'm going to break surface and come back into the world of relationship and, and, and belonging and being out in the messy world. No, we have to. The question is, what's your personal rhythm? What's the practice? Have you been? And so I ask this of those who are listening. What's your, your rhythm right now? Are you too much in the world and not enough in the deep? Are you too much in the deep and not enough in the world? You will do both because you're alive. So the, the practice is what is your personal practice of breaking surface and going back into the deep? And this is something that's important for us to practice right now, especially now. I love what you're saying. Let's look at presence a little, little more because you, you said something about it uh, repeating. The whole issue of present is for me zooming in, zooming in on my interiority, zooming in on what's happening around me, uh, my relational intimacy, all of those things. I'm zooming in. One of the things that I would say is happening, particularly in the U.S. right now, is an explosion of othering finding myself and my sense of self by I'm not that. I'm not those people, which is not presencing like we're talking about. But there's a tendency to do that even when people say find a spiritual group and they're really doing you know, deep work in their spiritual group, but they still often define themselves as not that rather than the, you know, the I am that I am kind of the sacred other, Martin Buber, what we're talking about here, the sacred thou. How, you know, you said meditation, but how do we pay more attention to in presence the natural way that we separate ourselves in order to somehow think we know ourselves more or who we well, are. I, I think that this speaks to, in our time, it's coming up, but it comes up in every age and it's our turn personally and collectively. But I do feel like there is a natural archetypal process when, when almost like a diagnostic condition that when I am othering, when I am defining myself by pushing off of, of others, it, it's usually an indication of how insecure and how, unattached I am to the authority of all being, to no. the presence of, of the greater whole, that I'm not connected. And I do believe that it's only great love and great suffering that opens the door of compassion. We can't rush it. We can't uh, make someone see it. We can speak about it. And like a greenhouse, we can make light and warmth so that people can grow as they can grow, but we can't force anyone to be compassionate. 
And there is this natural thing, you know, so when we're young, and I don't mean just years young, but young in development, inner development, we do, we push off and we want to see how are we unique? What makes me special? What makes me different? How do I know I'm me? But in the same way that erosion works on nature, time and experience erodes us until, if we're blessed, we find as we grow that you know, it's, not, it's not what's different that makes me unique. Uh, um, it's only what we have in common that makes me strong. It's only what, you know, so I only look now for what I have in common with all life, not how I'm different. And that is a process that's not necessarily chronological, but it's one that everyone has the opportunity to go through. You know, this is the, th this is, you know, compassion comes, the, I call this the apprenticeship of compassion versus the maturity, maturing of compassion. And I think both are unending parallel processes. They're not like one, one you know, our apprentice, I'll say that in a minute, the, the apprenticeship leads to it, but they, they, they're ongoing. So our apprenticeship into compassion is by identifying what we have in common. You know, I, I, my compassion grows that I learn, I learn, and here's a good example. When I was in my, I'm 69, but when I was in my thirties, you know, I remember being in a grocery store and there was an older woman, probably our age now, there was an older woman who was obviously she had a problem with her back and she was so slow, you know, getting uh, her getting through the line and getting out. And I remember, you know, feeling for her um, and then growing, honestly, very impatient, you know, in waiting. And then she vanished. And then, you know, within a year later, at that time in my life, I was playing racquetball and I tweaked something in my back. <laughs> and now all of a sudden I was like her, I couldn't, you know, the bathroom might as well have been China for about 14 days, right? Well, now the next time I'm out and I see someone like that, I don't just stand there, I go help them with their groceries. Yeah. That's the apprenticeship of compassion. Mm. Oh, now I know what that feels like. But the maturing of compassion is how do I exercise that kind of care when we don't have something in common? Yeah. How do I feel that for people? So my learning about first learning of that was um, being in a restaurant bar in upstate New York after the Vietnam War. And there was a guy who was a vet who was very agitated, obviously in inner psychological pain. And everybody, of course, was troubled and ignoring him. And not because I was, you know, necessarily reaching out, but it was one of those things where I was getting drinks for my friends. And as I got the drinks, I turned and his eyes and my eyes, he was in a booth, kind of saw each other. But I couldn't walk away. I suppose I could have. But, you know, I felt like, OK, we're we've recognized each other. And I sat down and thinking for a second and I we wound up you know, having this whole journey where he was sharing his, he was a medic in Vietnam. And I remember at one point I said, meaning it from my heart, you know, I can't imagine what you have seen and been through. And he slammed his fist on the table and said, no, you can't. And I took his hand and said, but I'm here. 
And that was my initiation into the maturing of compassion, where identifying with the old woman because I had hurt my back or identify if I have a broken heart and you have a broken heart and identifying with you, that leads me how to practice compassion, which never ends. But it also initiates me into the maturing of compassion so that I can practice that with people I don't identify with. I don't have, other than that, our humanity is, is what we have in common. I don't know what they have been through. And again, for our listeners, how do you apply that to your own life today, this week? Can you identify one place where you are apprenticing in compassion and one place with is something through something you have in common with another and somewhere where you're maturing in compassion, where you're also opening your heart to people you don't have something in common with. Beautiful. Yes. What a good question. I want to back up just a little bit in terms of the thing you said about our developing through either great love or suffering. So for me, when I look at great love, that is presence, that there's no distinction between actually presencing and being really there for someone or for ourselves and great love. The suffering side, we so resist it. And I, I'm going to take it to another level of that. And that's the grieving. Mm. Uh, because I, I personally feel there's so much to grieve right now. And I don't mean that like wallowing and you know that Mark, I'm not someone who wallows in grief, but there's something cleansing about grief. There's, you know, I actually have a grief practice that I do with my folks to actually, you know, how do you, you could grieve the loss of a parent. You can grieve the loss of a grandparent, even a child you can grieve, it's hard. How do you grieve 200 species a day on the planet becoming extinct? How do you grieve climate change, genocide, these bigger issues um, that we must, and I think in order to evolve, come to grips with these areas that have been shoved aside and, and, and history's been rewritten about things like slavery and you know the Columbus thing is up now because it's near Columbus Day, all of this. How do we learn to suffer or grieve intelligently in a way that actually connects us rather than, um, you know, like it's when you, when you pass um, a person with disabilities, you know, there, there's a tendency um, I, I try not to do that, but there's a tendency often to look away rather than to look towards. Even the Vietnam person you were talking about, you know, um, people tend to not want to hear their story. Talk yeah. about that, Mark. Well, I think, I mean, the, the beautiful thing you're opening is the, tr the, true, the true leaning into grieving as a teacher and what it can mean for us individually and as the whole, and there is great need for grieving whether, and I think I, I don't, you know, again, we're talking, I don't have answers. We're just speaking to these things. But for me, you know, I feel that the only way to touch into these inexplicable mammoth 
things that cause grief, whether it's something like the Holocaust or 9-11 or the, all these, you know, 200, over 220,000 now, you know, souls gone here in America, let alone the rest of the world from this virus. And I think that the only way that I've been able to touch into anything is through one atom of that at a time. That is, if I, you know, if I can feel what, you know, I remember there's a book uh, that was called The White Hotel by, by um, uh, Thomas, a British author. I can't remember his first name right now. Um, but anyway, um, it's, it's an amazing book because it, try, it really is the story of one person, the world of one troubled person, who after working their whole lives at this kind of inner work and with a therapist and relationships, and she winds up dying in one of the camps. Okay. And somehow by focusing on one life and its earnest attempt, and then after all of that, that life winds up dying in one of those camps, in a felt way reading that it multiplied like inconceivably that's just one that's just one a whole world and boom and and so i think that from the particular always from the particular we touch the heart we can't conceptualize you know boober we're talking about boober i love he said the world is incomprehensible but it is embraceable yeah i love that and i think also let me just touch on this before we run out of time too is that I do think that in the in this area, this era right now, the COVID era, you know, the old world is gone, and it's not coming back, and that has engendered loss and grief, and of a way of life, and there are whole pockets of our society, let alone around the world, that I feel are we're stuck in different stages of grief that like Kubler-Ross, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross defined, you know, she talked about, and she didn't say they were, uh, and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, those who may not remember her, she was the mother of the modern hospice movement and through working with so many people dying, you know, she noticed these five kind of stages people move through. Not, again, not necessarily sequentially, you can bounce around them like a constellation, but we tend to experience denial anger, bartering, let's bargain. Oh God, just if, no, don't let me die and I'll be a better, I'll go to church, you know? Um, uh, and then depression and acceptance. And it's really strikes me, uh, you know, we've been talking about the, I think the holy process of grieving, you know, and this very human uh, bumping along process of not really grieving and struggling with it. We have pockets right now in our society who are in total denial, especially in America. All these people gathering at the Trump rallies. No, tell me, no, it's not, it's not. No, we don't have, the world is still here. Everything's fine. No, it's not. You're in denial. You're in denial. You know, we have whole pockets that are stuck in anger. All these people, you know, that are carrying guns, protesting masks. What are we, protesting it's like protesting gravity are we protesting biology 
you know, damn that germ that became the coronavirus, you know, and all of these are resistance from feeling the old world is gone. People we care about are dying. We're afraid. This is hard. But unless we feel all that, we can't get to acceptance and we can't get to how do we imagine what's next together. So good. We're almost out of time. I, one more thing I wanted to bring up because I noticed that many people feel they can't be happy because of the suffering in the world. Hmm. And I remember Joe Campbell said one time, can we be joyful in the face of the suffering of the world? And for me, what I notice is when I practice gratitude, I am more, more joyful. But if I'm focused, you know, I grieve and I, I, and I let that energy ground me in my huge, large connection. But at the same time, the suffering in the world, it's almost like by not being joyful and there's something lacking in compassion, compassion or there's something that doesn't do the grief and the suffering justice to mean that that means I need to be down all the time. Yeah, so I'm glad you raised that, Michael, because I, I do feel... I um, I feel strongly about about this for for all of us, and I feel my experience has been that um, we take turns. Uh, trip, it's like we take turns being joyful, and we take turns suffering. Mm -hmm. And any day it could switch, and just as you know, the sun is shining, and then it's cloudy. And somewhere it's shining and somewhere it's raining and somewhere it's a rainbow and somewhere there's snow and ice. And we never know where this is part. And so if we are blessed to have a moment of joy, we serve ourselves in the whole by experiencing it because it does no good for all of us to be suffering at once because when I am broken open and you're broken, then my light fills your crack. Mm -hmm. And tomorrow we'll take turns. And when you're broken open and I'm broken, I'll receive the light, you know, because light by its nature will seek out and fill every single crack and darkness it can find. And so will joy. I think the key is never to forget the suffering while we're in joy yeah. not in the face of not in the face of the suffering or turning our back on the suffering because that's the difference so you know when i am blessed to feel joy and this goes back to that all things are true you know uh frederico garcia lorca the great spanish poet he has a powerful almost surreal image in one of his poems that really captures this and he says, uh, the image is, how can anyone kissing a newborn ever forget the skull of a dead horse? Mm -hmm. And, you know, his fellow poets, you know, I'm sure said, whoa, lighten up, Garcia. Whoa, you know, you're really, what did you drink today? 
But I think where he's getting at is what we're talking about, that how, you know, all things are true in enjoy feel the tender miracle of that newborn and don't ever forget that somewhere else forms are decomposing life is coming life is going let because if we are not the light then the light can't fill the crack i love garcia Lorca, and i can't believe we went through a whole show and didn't have you do a poem do you do you have a, a short one because i'm just yes so yeah here's a short a short one that <laughs> comes just because of all we've been talking about it's a short poem of mine that goes like this the mystery is that whoever shows up when we dare to give has exactly what we need hidden in their trouble. Beautiful. Mark Nepo, I love you, my friend. It's so good to be with you. And thank you for taking the time to be oh, with Oh, thank you, Michael. Much love to you too. And so glad to be a part of this new show. And again, say uh, the the website is uh, info. No, not it's live.marknepo.com. And that's where folks can find out about the next webinar I'll be offering on uh, finding inner courage. Beautiful, beautiful. I hope to see you soon. And thank you for your amazing work and inspiration that you've brought so much into the world. It's just- Oh, thank you, Michael. Thank me for your good work too. And to be a part of it. All right. Be well, my friend. Thank you. Bye for now. We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.